Chapter 37, March 1998, age 43. A sprinkling of snow was dusting the tarmac as Robert's flight landed at the Minneapolis airport. After debarking from the plane, he battled the blistery wind as he tucked his chin into his shirt as best as possible. Geez, fellas, he could have told me to dress a little warmer, he said as the marshals loaded him into the back of a black sedan and then got into the front seat. During the entire ride, the vehicle was void of conversation. When they made it to Sandstone Federal Correctional Institute, the marshals took Robert into the processing area and released him to the custody of the correctional officers. After exchanging his personal clothing for prison garb, he was photographed and taken to the area he would call home for the next year. It was a facility separate from all the others, especially suited for those being proposed into the Witness Protection Program. He was fortunate to find several other WITSEC prisoners who were followers of Jesus. They attended two Bible studies and one worship service together every week. They also prayed together every evening, an event that became vitally important for Robert. About a month after being admitted into Sandstone, Robert learned that his mother had been diagnosed with cancer only a year after having heart surgery. The news was devastating enough that Robert considered abandoning his plan to enroll in the Witness Protection Program. He didn't care that he'd be putting his life in danger. His mother had always been there for him. Now it was his turn to be there for her. While reading his Bible in his cell, Robert prayed about his situation. While praying, he fell asleep. When he woke up, Genesis chapter 12 was on his mind. He wasn't that familiar with the different stories in the Bible, so he turned to it. He began to read how Abraham left his family to go to the land of Cana and how God blessed him for his obedience. Robert saw that as possible confirmation that God wanted him to continue, but he was still uncertain. He felt he needed more confirmation, so he called his mother. Don't worry about me. You just need to take care of yourself, she said when he proposed the idea of coming home. This was the proof he needed. Six months into his sentence, the federal marshals began interviewing him to see if he would be a fit for the witness protection program. They drilled him with a battery of questions intent to discourage him from wanting to be in the program. He also went through psychological testing as well as a polygraph and was told to pick three places he'd like to live. Thinking more like his old self, Robert's top two picks were Hawaii and California. His third pick was Pennsylvania. That way he'd be close to home. Robert's release date of March 7, 1999 was fast approaching, and with it came some anxiety. He knew he was living the way God wanted him to live. On top of his regular Bible study, he had signed up for correspondence courses through Set Free Ministries and accumulated 32 college credits. But the words jailhouse conversion were floating among some of his fellow inmates, who were trying to convince him that once he was released from prison, he'd go back to doing drugs. About two months before he was released, Robert feared that what they were saying was true. In his cell, at his regular morning quiet time, he had a fervent need to take the issue to God in prayer. He got down on the floor with his Bible, opened it up, and placed his face against his pages. He then prayed, God, let your word get into my mind so that I never forget it. He then adjusted his position so that his heart was directly over the Bible and then said, God, let your word penetrate my heart. Let it live in my heart. This became a part of his routine.
from that day to the date of his release. March 7th fell on a Sunday. Since prisoners were not processed out on weekends, Robert's release date had to be moved up to Friday, March 5th, since it was against the law to hold a prisoner past his release date. This was both good and bad. Robert got out two days early, but the two marshals in charge of him said they were unable to book a flight out and wouldn't be able to until Monday. Robert was out, but it would be a couple of days before he left Sandstone. They drove him to a hotel where he was set up in a room. With the low temperatures in the single-digit range, Robert was able to convince the marshals to set him up with some warmer clothes, including a jacket. They told him he was free to go where he wanted, but recommended not to wander too far off. His situation required that all ties to his past life, including his driver's license and social security card, be severed. Therefore, he had no ID. If for some reason he were asked to produce some, he'd be in a precarious situation. Robert took their advice, and except for a visit to a local church on Sunday, he settled into the room where he ate, prayed, and waited. On Monday morning, the marshals returned and picked Robert up. He found the drive to the airport in Minneapolis from Sandstone a bit unsettling as his mind started pondering wild thoughts. No one except the government, his former enemy, knew where he was. It would be nothing for him to disappear into the frozen forests of Minnesota or into the deep waters of one of its many lakes. These guys could shoot him dead and say that he was trying to escape. All the men indicted on the case that involved him took pleas, so he was no longer needed to testify against them. As far as he knew, there were no other cases for which his testimony would be used. Since Robert had already served his purpose at that time, it'd be a lot cheaper for the government to get rid of him than to keep him. There were all sorts of scenarios that Robert played out in his mind that ended with him on the short end of the stick. After an intense two-hour drive, his anxiety was eased as the van finally arrived at the airport. Like clockwork, two more marshals received him at the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport and whisked him onto a jet, which flew them to an undisclosed location. When they landed, Robert was greeted by two more marshals, who put him in yet another windowless van. They drove for a while until they stopped. When they opened the back of the van, Robert got out into a tunnel next to a concrete staircase. The marshals took him up the stairs and brought him to a suite with a patio. This is where you'll stay for the next few days, one of the marshals told him. He looked at the black plastic bag Robert was carrying. What's that? he asked. Robert held it up. This? Some pictures of my mom and daughter, some certificates for college courses. I'll need to take that from you. You can't have anything in your possession that relates back to your past. Reluctantly, Robert handed him the bag. If you need anything, just let us know. All right, I'll do that. Are you hungry? Not yet. We'll get you whatever you want to eat within reason. There are snacks in the mini-fridge also. Robert saw the small fridge to his left. That's great, he said. So, like, what's going to happen next? You'll be informed soon. Do you know where I'm going to live? Can you tell me that much? No. Boy, these guys are full of information. The marshal smiled. You've come a long way in the process. Just be patient a little while longer. Yeah, okay, thanks. After the marshals left, Robert opened the sliding door that led out to the patio. He looked to the top of the walls along the perimeter, which were about two stories high and solid. 
Wow, these guys really don't want me to know where I am. He closed the patio door, went to the front room, and sat down. He chuckled to himself as he thought of how, only a few nights ago, he was sleeping inside a prison cell, eating whatever was put before him. Now he was in a nice suite, being treated like a VIP. The thought of his mother prompted a search for a telephone. He didn't find one. She wasn't doing very well the last time he'd spoken with her. He wanted to see if she'd made any improvement. He hated that he didn't ask the marshal about it while he had the chance, but it would be at the top of the list when he saw him again. The next morning, Robert awoke to a knock at the door. He got up, stumbled to the door, and opened it. It was the marshal. You've got 20 minutes to get dressed, and then I'll bring you breakfast. What do you want? Robert scratched his head. I'm not really much of a breakfast person. Just bring me a cup of coffee and a glass of orange juice. After he showered and shaved, the marshal returned with the coffee and the juice. Thanks. Hey, listen. Is there any way I can check on my mom? She's been fighting cancer, and I'd like to know how she's doing. Marshall shook his head. I'm sorry. He gave Robert a few minutes to enjoy his liquid breakfast, which was difficult to do considering his answer, and then took him to another room down the hall from his suite. Three more marshals were in the room. After introducing themselves, they began a battery of questions and tests very similar to the ones he took at Sandstone. This went on all day, breaking only for lunch, for which Robert was famished. When the evening finally rolled around, he was told by one of the marshals that his, quote, homework was to come up with a new last name. The following day was the same routine, except Robert started out with a more substantial breakfast. I came up with a couple of names, he said. How about Gotti or Capone? He laughed, but the marshals didn't join in. All right, I guess that's a no. Seriously, I thought about Russo or maybe Baducci. Those are some good Italian names. One of the marshals jotted down the names and left for a few minutes. When he returned, he shook his head. No, the marshal who gave him the assignment said, you'll need to try again. The next day, he had several more names, but none of them worked either. That evening, while eating his dinner, he was watching an old episode of M.A.S.H., in the episode, a visiting doctor with the last name Borelli comes to the MASH unit. He's a famous heart surgeon. Since Robert was attuned to last names, being in desperate need of a new one, this name struck him as one most appropriate. This doctor saved the lives of his patients, and Robert wanted to be a minister who saved souls. The next morning, he gave the name to the marshals, and it was accepted. From now on, he'd be known as Robert Borelli. When the marshals finished processing Robert, he asked again where he'd be living. For security purposes, we can't tell you right now, but we will tell you on the way to the airport. Instead of a van, the marshals put Robert into the back seat of a car to drive him to the airport. Okay, so now can you tell me where I'm going? The marshal in the front passenger seat turned around. Robert didn't like the grin on his face. San Antonio. San Antonio? Robert repeated. The marshal nodded, obviously amused. San Antonio? Texas? Like with cowboys and horses and buggies? The marshal laughed. Boy, you guys really know how to pick them. I shouldn't have any problem blending in there.